So this morning, um, I'm going to teach from Ezra chapter 2. Yes, I'm teaching Ezra chapter 2. If you happen to read ahead, did anybody read ahead? Did anybody take a look at, at what Ezra 2 holds in store for us? Yeah, and guess what? I'm going to read Ezra 2. I'll butcher half the names. You know what I did? I actually turned on my ESV app, and I put it on the audio, and I listened to the individual pronounce the names. I mean, there's like 125 names. And I was like, well, I'll try to grab two or three of those. So I'm going to teach from Ezra chapter 2 today, um, but before I begin, I wanted to read from Psalm uh, 87. I apologize. I'm going to read from my phone. Oof, that's a major no-no, but I'm going to do it because I don't have the NASB, and I wanted to specifically read the NASB of Psalm 87 because I liked just the, the, the wording of it. This is a, a psalm of Korah or the Psalm of the Sons of Korah, and it's, it's titled A Song. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, city of God. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush, this one was born there. But of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will count when he registers the people. This one was born there. Then those who sing, as well as those who play the flutes, will say, all my springs of joy are in you. Psalm 87, it's a, it's a prophetic song. It's a song to celebrate God's future city. It's a picture that the psalmist sees of the future city of God in which all people, Israelites and Gentiles alike, whether friend or enemy of God, would find habitation within its borders. And by that, I mean, it's not just for the people of Israel, but the city of God would be for all of mankind. And they would find their, their, their habitation within the city boundaries, each being counted. And I love just how the psalmist says that, that each one is counted, each individually. And we'll see that that's particularly applicable to this morning's text in Ezra 2. That each one is counted and registered as a citizen within her. And as I was reading Psalm 87 this week, I couldn't help but think Psalm 87 was written I don't know exactly, but somewhere like two to 300 years prior to what we'll, where we're at now in Ezra chapter two. And I couldn't help but think that as they oriented their hearts and minds towards Jerusalem, and as their feet began to move in that direction, that perhaps this Psalm 87, or maybe ones like it, or, or the prophecies of, of what would be of the city of God were a song on the heart of the people. And it was almost like this morning, our song, the modern day version, but it was us together. And, and even though we sing these words all my life and it's very personal and it seems individual, I don't know if you guys were caught up in it, but there was very much a sense this morning of, in my life, we're talking about us as the people of God. And I just had this picture of the Israelites moving together and journeying towards Jerusalem to take on the work that they had been called to, that their hearts were stirred in, and perhaps that psalm was on their hearts and minds. The city of God, that which would be the promise of what that city might be. I've, uh, I've entitled today's teaching, The Journey of Faith. 
And as we'll see in a moment, the commencement of this journey is in part at least what chapter 2 is speaking of, although the perspective is after the journey has taken place. It's a recording of those who journeyed out. What we see is in terms of the chronological order of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, chapter 2 seems to introduce now the actual journey of the exiles back towards Jerusalem again. And it says it's the words that end chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, it says that those who were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord so that they might worship the Lord God once again as he had designed. And just to make the obvious connection for us, brothers and sisters, the present day connection is that their journey is not unlike our own. The one that we together are all on today. Like, like Israel, we are an out of exile. We're on an out of exile journey of faith, aren't we? Having been delivered from captivity, having been brought into freedom, we too are on a journey of faith. From coming out of Babylon, which represents captivity, towards God's eternal city, which again we know is spoken of in Revelation 21. It's the same journey each one of us is on, those who have followed God from decades and centuries and millennia past to however long into the future, it's the same journey. It's a journey of faith. This is what we're on today. And so holding just these kind of two perspectives I want to ask you today, both the historical context of Ezra 2, but also the present day application for all believers of this journey of faith. And that primarily what it is, it is one of faith. And so before I read the text, what I want to do is just highlight what the journey meant for those who embarked upon it, namely the uncertainty that the journey held. And we're going to see that as we get into the next couple of chapters. For many, many of the returnees, and I think Rick said this last week, they were born in exile. They were those who had never seen the former temple built, the glory of the former temple. They had never worshipped in the temple For these, Babylon represented home. Babylon represented stability and security. It was a place of comfort for many of them, and it probably included with it a sense of belonging. It's interesting to think of that they had spent so much time, especially those that were born in captivity. Babylon was home. Babylon was, was security. It was comfort. And it seems to be clear from chapter 1 that not all of the exiles left and journeyed back to Jerusalem. And so we can also assume that some of the travelers might have left friends, maybe even family behind. We don't know. But all of this is just to point out the uncertainty, the difficulty, the cost, if you will, of obedience and faith to step out and follow the Lord back to the city of Jerusalem. But perhaps even more significant than any of what they had left was where they were going. They're journeying to a place where they had no land, they had no homes, they had no work, right? They had no possessions apart from perhaps what they took with them out of Babylon to Jerusalem. There was no guarantee whatsoever except what? That they would find a city that had laid mostly in ruins for decades, a temple destroyed, a great work before them. Could you imagine that? If there was some sort of 
parallel in present day where God said to us as a church, we want you to go to this place. And we're going, I've got nothing. What am I to take with me? And yet, and yet, and yet, church, what gripped them so deeply was faith in the promises of God. Like Psalm 87, perhaps, the words spoken by the psalmist or the words spoken by the prophet of God's plan and God's design for his people, that is what they held on to. That is what gripped them. A deep sense of resolve to see the worship of God, of Israel restored once again. The people were committed to the call of the Lord and to the glory of his worship. This is what moved them. The glory of the Lord and the commitment to worshiping him rightly is what moved them to count that immense cost. And I think within this, we can hear that there's, there's echoes of the present age where the call to follow Jesus is a call for us to leave everything behind us and to journey in faith. Like Abraham, right, who sought the city, whose builder and architect was God, we're called to look beyond the present life, aren't we, church? To look past the present life past the offerings that this world has to offer and to respond to the glorious call of Christ, no matter the cost, right? Think about this. Do we agree with this? Is this the call of the Christian life? To follow Christ no matter the cost, no matter the distance, no matter the duration, no matter the outcome, no matter the security, no matter the stability or the enjoyment. None of those things are given to us as certainties. What we are certain of is the call to follow Christ Jesus with faith. This is what the people, too, had faced before them. And as I was just reflecting upon this, it was the words of Hebrews chapter 12, which I think I just recently read but it's the portion that we know so well. And I was thinking, what it would be like to be them in that moment? Just as I was thinking about of the cost again and the call to faith and what that would be like. And my mind went to Hebrews chapter one or Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. And it's let us throw off every weight. Let us lay aside every hindrance, every sin that entangles and may we run with perseverance. And I just felt like that was the word for us this morning, church. To lay off every hindrance and sin, to be unencumbered in our faith. What the, 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 just the time of ministry that the Lord brought to us and during our singing was so profound. What are the hurdles, brothers and sisters, that are keeping you from running this race well? It's so good for us to come alongside of one another, to lay hands on each other and to minister to one another by the presence and the, and the mercy of God for these hindrances, for these hurdles. I just felt like this is what God was saying. May we not be like those who remain in exile because of what Babylon represented for them, the comfort, the stability, the place, etc. May we not be like those. And may we not fear the journey either because of the uncertainties that it brings, but may we be a people of faith. Amen? 
So my, my desire is just as we study Ezra chapter 2, that we'll find this sense of renewed faith and greater resolve to walk well, brothers and sisters. Let's walk well, this journey that God has put before us. And we're going to see that primarily for the people, as I've been saying, it's a journey of faith. And faith is the primary means of God's journeying people. It's what he's given to his people to accomplish that which he's called them to. Even though it was God who is identified as stirring their spirits to return to Jerusalem in chapter 1-5, which we looked at last week, both the decision to journey and the work that they would take up would require from each one of them a tremendous measure of faith. It was both God and their own will and determination and engagement intentionally that was at play. It wasn't just God and they had no free will to choose. They had to choose. We have to choose today. We choose. So turn to Ezra chapter one, and here we go. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a real good part. I'm going to put a little icing on the cake, and I'm going to read about all the numbers at the end of chapter one as well. Beginning in verse nine, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bishlan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Benai. Or Benea, Beena. I'm not even, we're just keep going. The number of the men of the people Israel. Listen, don't check out either. This is the word of God. There's something in this for us. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Sheptiah, 372. The sons of Era, 775. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benai, 642. The sons of Babai, Bibai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonakim, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Ader, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashem, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Nedophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Arim, Chephkira, Kephira, and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Rama and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, that's a good name for those would-be parents. Mitchmas, 122. Mm-hmm. Blake and Brittany, I'm just saying. Boy or girl, 
Mitch Matz. It doesn't matter. Mitch Matz. <laughs> Mitch Matz Stavnis. Well, it's got a ring to it. The men, the men of Bethel, the men of Bethel and Ai, two twenty-three. The sons of Nebo, fifty-two. The sons of Magbish, one fifty-six. The sons of the other Elam, one hundred, one thousand two hundred fifty-four. The sons of Harem, three twenty or Harim. That sounds better. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, seven twenty-five. The sons of Jericho, three hundred forty-five. The sons of Senea, three thousand six hundred thirty. Then we get to the priests. The sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1052. The sons of Pasher, 1247. The sons of Harim, 1017. Then the Levites, the sons of Yeshua, Cadmiel of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom the sons of Ader, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai in all, 139. The temple servants, the son of Ziha, the sons of Hasupa, the sons of Tebe, Teba, I'm getting worse as we go, the sons of Keras, the sons of Seiah, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, Rezin, the sons of Nekoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephishim, the sons of Habakkuk, the sons of Hakapha, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Meha. Oh, I'm almost done. I feel like I'm running out of steam here. But now I feel like I'm committed and I want to keep going. Listen, I feel, you guys are all going to remember. You remember when Matt read Ezra chapter 2? Come on. Where's our faith for the journey, brothers and sisters? The sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hadapha. And then we come to Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasso Fereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jaala, the sons of Darkon, of Gedel, of Shephatiah, of Hatil, of Pachereth Hazabame, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were how many? All right, you're with me. The following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha. Carib, Adan, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda were 652. Also, the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registrations among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. 
Their horse were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of the family, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minus of silver, and 1,000 priests' garments. Now the priests of the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel was in their towns. We did it. We did it. Listen, I'm not kidding. I was like, I'm not going to read all these. And then I thought, this is the word of God. I'm going to read these words. We're going to get through it together. And actually, well, not actually. I feel like God has something for us. I know he does this morning. And so let's jump into it. So beneath the surface of this text, because that's where we need to go. We got to get beneath the names. We got to get beneath the numbers. There's a powerful truth that is incredibly applicable, not to just their journey, but to ours as well. It's an interesting perspective, as I already mentioned, that's recorded, uh, that that chapter two of Ezra is recorded in. Because unlike the previous post-exile trek from Egypt, where we see and we have a great amount of detail that's given to talk about the journey, here in Ezra two, we have none of that whatsoever. We've got what? Names and numbers, that's it. There's no recording of any details, nothing about how long the journey took, what they ate, what they took with them, whether they went all together or perhaps they left in stages and segments, how many women or how many children, we've got none of it. We know their horses and their donkeys and we know how many singers went along with them. <laughs> I'm just picturing these people. This is great. We're going to Jerusalem. And there's 200 of them that are falling. Like, put the singers in the back. <laughs> or they spread them out. We'll take 10 at a time. <laughs> so the only focus that we have here in chapter two is the names and it's the numbers. And prior to the names at the end of chapter one, I also made us endure the interesting inventory of all the temple vessels. And I asked God, just as I was digging into this text, okay, why God? Why, why the specificity? Why the numbers? Why the intent to account for each and every single item and person? And so I want to consider for a moment, beginning with what the temple items represented for the people of God. Why was it important that we had a historical record of the temple items? And in that moment, why was it important that they would know not only what, but how many they were taking with them? Is it just a laundry list of, of like temple tchotchkes? Hey, we've got these things and we're going to take them with us. Is it, or is there some like more significant, <laughs> you know, a tchotchke? It's just like a, it's like, it's just a, it's like a knickknack. It's like a temple knickknack. Well, we got this sensor, let's take it with us. You know, is it, is it an inventory of that or was, was there some strategic purpose behind it? And of course, we believe that there's strategic purpose. Get to it, Matt. What is it? So the very first thing that came to my mind, the first thing that came to my mind is that this, we have to remember the words of Jesus, that he's a God of intimate knowledge and care that he is a God who is profoundly interested in the details. And I thought of the words of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew when he says to those, consider the flowers of the field, right? 
how they grow. And he goes on to say, if God clothes them, the grass of the field, the field will he not much more, arguing from the lesser to the greater, will he not much more care for you? And that was the first thing that came to my mind as I began to consider why God, why the numbering? Or later in chapter 10 of Matthew, he talks about all the numbers of your head are counted for. Brothers and sisters, if God cares for even the greatest detail in the items by which the people would worship, how much more does he care for the vessels, the people themselves, that he would be calling out to worship him? How much more? And what that meant for the people of God, again, in light of the uncertainty, in light of the unforeseen, How about for us today? If God cares about the intimate details of his creation, how much more does he care about his children, about those whom he's called? They were consecrated items. They were vessels and objects that had been specified, purified, and then set apart. That's what the temple items were. For the sole use of the worship of God, of Yahweh, In terms of their presence, they were vital to the functions of the temple in its truest form. If the temple was to be rebuilt, the vessels must be present in order for the temple worship to be what it should be. And we read that they're returning. It wasn't because the people had asked for it. What do we see is that God had impressed upon Cyrus, just like he had impressed upon for them to be released to go, that the vessels would be taken with the people. And I thought, beyond just the understanding of the care and the intimacy by which God knows and, and loves his, his, his creation and his people, for the people of Israel, these holy vessels, these sacred vessels from the temple were representative of God's promise to rebuild. They were tangible, sure, and certain promises that as they went with them, as they carried them along, they spoke to the people that God will accomplish what he said he would. And I thought about us today, what are those things that we carry? What are our temple vessels, church, that we carry with us? It's already actually been spoken of, probably the greatest. We carry the scripture, do we not? That is our promise that God will complete the work that's within us. And what else do we carry? Who is the guarantee? Who is the deposit that we have within us that is our sure and certain anchor that we will complete what he has called us to? It's the spirit of God. We too carry within us and with us these things that are meant to represent the promise and the certainty of what God is doing among us and in us. They were visible signs to the people of Israel that God was in that moment. It's interesting too that what isn't included in the return to Jerusalem is the Ark of the Covenant. Did you guys notice that? We know that the Ark was carried off long before, in the early stages, never to be seen again. And what was in the ark? Do you guys remember? It was the law of God. Yeah, there was a lot of things in the ark. Sorry, that's kind of... Yeah, I'm just getting to one thing. It was the... (laughs) It was the... You're right. But more importantly, for the point that I'm making, was the tablets that carried the law of God. And it's interesting, the ark not returning to Jerusalem almost ensured that the new temple would not be as nearly as glorious as the previous for those who understood what the significance of the ark was. And perhaps it was even a foreshadow of what we heard at the beginning of what God would do, where the law would be written on each individual's hearts. Perhaps it was. 
And maybe there were even those that knew and that remembered the prophecies. And then comes the names, right? So many names. Unless you're a, number, a numbers and a statistics nerd, on, on the surface, most of us are all just tempted to get bogged down and be like, what is the point of it all? But if we take a step back and we give a broader view, we'll see more clearly that this truth that we can take a hold of, a bit of a, of a faith nugget, if you will, and it's this, that names matter. Names matter, brothers and sisters. But why do names matter? Does God forget those that are his? Is this some sort of a ledger that God looks back to so that he might remember how to deal with those who are his and those who are not when the time is needed? No. It's a record for the people of God that they know that they are his, that they know that they have been counted. And it's just like uh, Hebrews chapter 11 where we have those who have, by faith, men and women journeyed the shoulders of the giants whom we stand upon and how we read Hebrews 11 and we read of everything that they did and how that becomes an encouragement for us to remain steadfast and to continue. This is the same type of thing. God is recording those who were his. And it says in the very beginning of chapter two, verse one, these were the people of the province who came out of captivity. These were the men and women, these were the families who journeyed by faith with the work of the Lord. And it's there to give us a sense of faith and hope and steadfastness in the journey that we're on today. And so that's why I wanted to read it because these were people like us. What would it be like to have our names recorded in such a way? The sons of Matthew four. And we journeyed. That's what it was for. Specificity matters to God. Sorry, Ella, you came too, baby, but you just weren't listed. You were part of the singer, Sonny. No, we would have put you on a donkey. Huh. Specificity matters to God. Precision matters to God, doesn't he? It's a historical record of those who were faithful to him. A chronicle of faith seen for decades and centuries later, those who would be counted as part of God's. And now we've got this interesting arc that we see. I don't know if you picked up on this or not. We've got this arc because as I said in the beginning, in the introduction, in the overview of the historicity of Ezra, what was once 12 sons of Jacob, God began with 12, right? 12 sons of Jacob that would grow into what? 12 tribes of Israel birthed into this great nation within captivity, been reduced to a shadow of its former glory. And what, does, what is, the, what is the, the, the writer record here for us at the very beginning of chapter two? Well, we get 11, but if you look at Nehemiah's chapter seven, there's 12 men. There's the, Nehemiah 7, 7 records the exact same list of people that come, of the, of the leaders and the heads of the families, but Nehemiah lists 12, and for some reason, Ezra forgot one. But we see 12. We see 12 again. It's interesting. In the calling of the 12, those who would emerge from exile once again to go back to Jerusalem, it's almost that God is saying that even though what remains might be a remnant, it is still complete as his people. It's not lacking. It's not as though God made a mistake. God numbers these 12 to show us that what he was doing was still complete, was still right, and was within his perfect will and plan. 
And it's almost a bit of like a self-fulfilled prophecy. Well, why such a small number of people for such a large task? And what do we remember? In Deuteronomy, the Lord tells Israel what? It's not because they were great in number that he chose them, right? But because they were, in fact, the fewest, he says, of all of the earth that they were chosen. It was out of the faithfulness of God to his promises of, to Abraham that Israel was chosen. And this is the narrative that runs through this, brothers and sisters. God is faithful to his word. As we sang this morning, as we were overcome by, God is faithful to his promises. Let that sink deep within you today, if it, as, if it hasn't already. He is faithful. He is good. God does big things with small numbers in order to show that it is not by the might or the power of man that something is accomplished, but by his power alone and because of his faithfulness alone. And so for us today, I felt like God was just saying or wanted me to say to us as an encouragement, be careful, just as he said to Israel at Sinai, be careful lest you say in your hearts that my power and the might of my hand have gained me these things. And he also says, don't say that it's because of my righteousness that I now possess these things. And I felt like God was just saying to me, be careful. Be careful unless we become puffed up in our heart and our mind and somehow think that we have attained these things for ourselves. May we never say that it's by my strength that I journey on in this life. But may it always be by the goodness of God, by the faithfulness of God. There was a song we used to sing when I was growing up and, and it's, it has always stuck me and just resonated as faith. And there was a part of a bridge and it says that you were faithful to Abraham, you were faithful to Moses, you were faithful to David and you're faithful to us today. You have shown your faithfulness to all generations. We lift our eyes to see your glory and your majesty. And as the people of God engaged in this chorus, what a pronouncement that is. Both to those who would hear as well to our own souls. You are faithful, you are faithful, you are faithful. It's not even just all my life you have been faithful. It's all throughout the history of the world God has been faithful. And as I said a moment ago, and I'll wrap up quickly, but names and numbers, they matter to God. Multiple times within the Old Testament, we see that God numbers his people. Three times in the book of Numbers, ironically, God numbers his people. First in the beginning, God tells Moses to number the people in preparation for war. And then again, later on in Numbers, before they get prepared to go into the promised land, and it's interesting in this portion, I think it's Numbers chapter 13 or something like that, where it talks about that God numbers them again in preparation for war, but it says that there's those who were numbered were none who journeyed through the wilderness except for two, Caleb and Joshua, the two men. It was almost like God was reminding the people that of their, because of their disobedience and their sinfulness and the judgment that he had pronounced upon them, I'm gonna count you again so that you see that I am faithful to my word that you will not enter into the promised land. And then we see that it's, they're numbered again and just prior to that, in between those two, um, the Lord tells Moses to number the Levites. 
in preparation for temple service. And then we see it a fourth time in 2 Samuel. Is it 2 Samuel? Chronicles. I can't remember. Sorry. But it's Solomon, and Solomon takes a census, and he counts the people, and he numbers them in preparation for the building of the temple. And it's interesting. So we see this correlation between God numbering and recording his people in preparation for something that he would soon do. And what's more, there's another significant counting that takes place, but this time it's at the end of all things. And it's in John's revelation in chapter seven. And what does he see again? The 12 tribes. We could probably spend the morning and get into numerology. That would be interesting. Biblical numerology, that is. But what does John see beyond the 12 tribes? It says a multitude that none could count. And what are they doing? It's this counting that takes place. Well, we see the 12 tribes and each, within each tribe is, is 12,000. And then he sees the multitude that none can count that's far greater. And it was all in what? Engaged in worship. And it's like the final culmination of God counting those who are his. And this time, it's beyond what we can comprehend who would worship him. And as I thought about this act of God to count and to name his people in preparation for what he has called them to and the work that they would soon undertake, I thought of three reasons which are for our benefit and for our pleasure that we see something as simple and seemingly as menial as God recording names and numbers. And I'll give these three things to you quickly. The first is this. God numbers as a confirmation for us that his oath is with man. God counts as a confirmation to us that his oath is with man. His covenant was with Abraham. His covenant was with each individual of Israel personally and specifically. And we often miss that point because it's the people of Israel. But the oath was with each one, which is why we see some that when God's judgment, that the judgment is carried out individually and specifically as well. And today, brothers and sisters, his covenant is still with man. But now it's a new covenant. It's a better covenant that's held by one man, Jesus Christ, right? Through whom the covenant was made once and for all time, never to be rescinded, never to expire, never to fade, always to be. Jesus Christ stands as our oath of our covenant with God. He's the eternal priest whose atonement has granted to us by grace through faith, access. And he now stands before the Father as the righteousness and perfect, righteousness of God and perfect sacrifice and offering. One man, one oath for all time now for us. May we find faith today in this Christian journey, knowing that God has made a covenant with each and every one of you. Find faith today in where you are. Thinking about, again, the hurdles that we face, the chasms that we cross. Remember that God has made his covenant with you. You are numbered. You are named. Number two, God numbers as a confirmation that those who are counted belong to him. That those counted belong to him. 
Just as Israel was counted that day, not for God's sake, but for their own, so too are we counted as God's own. We're each his personally, individually, known by him, called by him, saved by him, sustained by him, completed by him, each one of us. It's not even just you in your family. It's your children. It's your spouse. Oh, that my kids would sing the words with as much passion as I sang them this morning. All my life, you have been faithful. And forever, it will be this way. As John looks forward to the end of this present age in Revelation 20, he speaks of those who are forever belonging to God as attested to by having their names written in the Lamb's book of life, never to be removed and never to be blotted out. This is our confidence, church. This is our joy. We are God's individually, a people collectively forever his own prized possession. He counts to remind us that we belong to him. And number three, and finally, God numbers as a record of his faithfulness. And I've already alluded to this. Just as the number of bowls and vessels were a testament to the people that he would most certainly see his temple rebuilt, so too does scripture filled with, with its numerous promises, oaths, with its numerous records of covenant become our assurance that what God began, he will most certainly complete. It's a record of his faithfulness. And what's more, and I said this recently too, is that this oath, this record of his faithfulness was made and placed upon something that is most certain himself. And that again is the writer of Hebrews. He made an oath swearing by himself. And we'll soon see that Israel will not remain faithful in their efforts. But, again, as we heard a few weeks ago, all of this sets the stage for the entrance of the one who remained perfectly faithful and whose followers would one day, too, become forever perfectly faithful. And let me just finish by reading a couple of verses from the prophet Zechariah, who soon we will see the Lord is going to use Zechariah to speak to the people, to stir their hearts, to become faithful to the work again. But listen to what Zechariah says in chapter eight, and I think we have it up here. And the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. This faithful city, brothers and sisters in Zechariah 8, prophesies a coming blessing to the returned exiles. This was spoken to them, to the returning exiles, with two significant things that would happen. First is that God would again dwell with his people, and number two, that they would no longer be known for their faithlessness, but rather they would be a people characterized by their faithfulness to God. We are still on that trek. Do not lose heart. Do not lose faith. Do not lose sight of what God is calling you to. Remain faithful. Remain faithful. As I was preparing the song, we sing it often, He Will Hold Me Fast. I was picturing the people of Israel, the 
42 some odd thousand people and the verses being sung. And if we had time this morning, I would say, let's sing it together. But let me just read you these words. He says, those, and I say he because it was a man who wrote it. Those he saves are his delight. Think of just what I've said this morning. Those he saves are his delight. And what is the response? Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. And it ends by saying, for my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. And I'm picturing the people of Israel walking along. He will hold me fast. Brothers and sisters, and I had this picture of us too, singing this together as we journey along. Stay in faith, you guys. You are counted. Remember that you are counted. And the next time you come and want to skip over the book of Numbers, press on and press through and remind yourselves that God records those who are his. Amen? Amen. All right, would you stand with me? Father, we love you. We delight in every aspect of your word. And Father, we, we thank you for what you are speaking to us. May our hearts be stirred to faith. May our hearts be stirred to steadfastness and to perseverance, Lord God. You have called us to this journey of faith just like you have called the millions of others who have gone before us, Lord. May we be reminded that you have counted us as your own. May we be reminded, Lord, that your oath is with us, that you will be faithful to your word, Lord God. May we be reminded, Lord, that scripture is full of the faithfulness of God. So that as we sing these words, Lord, that you are good and that your love endures, that all my life, you have been so good that every breath I will sing of the goodness of God, Lord, that it resonates with something so deep within us. And Lord, again, I just pray for that, that we would go deep. Lord, take us deeper, I ask, deeper than we have gone, deeper than we expect, deeper than we might even thought that we could go, Lord, take us deeper. Anchor us so deep in truth, Lord. May that be a, just that picture of us arm in arm, moving forward together, saying, he will hold us fast. Christ will hold me fast. Those are his. We, as those who are his, are his delight. We love you, Lord God. Compel us by your grace, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.